This is Farmland, coming up. As UK Prime Minister Theresa May and EU officials scramble to finalise a Brexit deal, Independent Senator Ian Marshall is here to outline why farmers in Northern Ireland are backing the draft withdrawal agreement. Plus, as frustrations over beef prices and the future of the beef sector continues to rage, Cormac Healy, the director of Meat Industry Ireland, will be in studio to respond to the escalating situation. But first, if it goes through, what will the Brexit withdrawal agreement mean for farming in the north? Niall Claffey has this report. The implications of Brexit for Irish and Northern Irish farmers across many enterprises has caused major concern. Last week, a draft proposal for the implementation of Brexit was published. The withdrawal agreement, which was recognised between Britain and the EU, was overwhelmingly supported by the Irish government. However, north of the border, David Brown, the Deputy President of the Ulster's Farmers Union, cautiously welcomed the agreement, outlining that a no-deal scenario would be detrimental to the agri-food economy in the region. I guess at the end of the day, probably to, to answer the question about where we stand uh, in relation to the agreement that has come out, you perhaps have to understand maybe a little bit of the structure, the democratic structure of the Ulster Farmers Union, in that our committees feed in people into our uh, sectoral committees, and those committees then feed into our executive board. So when we, I suppose, have those discussions in relation to, you know, well, at the end of the day, I guess, is, is a no deal an option for us? And I mean, that has been made very, very clear uh, right throughout the structure of the Ulster Farmers Union that no deal would be a bad scenario for agriculture and uh, I suppose the businesses that uh, would struggle in that situation. The idea of a hard border would have serious implications for farmers and business owners operating both north and south of the border. While all sectors would be affected, David highlighted that the sheep export market would be severely impacted. Presently, I mean, in terms of, I think probably the one that's been highlighted time and time again uh, has been uh, the sheep uh, business. And, uh, you know, at, at present, we export about 1% of our exports of sheep is into the, or sorry, outside of the EU. And, uh, you know, somewhere in the region of 95% of sheep exports from the whole of the UK is actually into EU countries. So, um, you know, it, it's a case of, you know, if, if we were faced with the situation where we couldn't access those markets, even in the short term, like that would put businesses under incredible pressure. And I suppose at the end of the day, um, that, you know, that's out wider and even in terms of, you know, there's something like 50% of our sheep go south of the border. Um, dairy produce, something like 30% of our milk. Uh, pigs come north uh, for slaughter. All the ducks in Ireland are slaughtered in the south of Ireland. You know, th things that perhaps, you know, in, I suppose in a, in a wider audience, uh, it's not until you sort of start um, to dive down into those figures and realise, you know, how much uh, export dependent as a country and a nation with we are. The Deputy President also outlined the UFU's objectives and concerns of farmers underground surrounding Britain's withdrawal. It'd be foolish of me to say that when we take a position it's going to be universally popular and uh, that's not going to be the case, never would be. With 11,500 farming families that we represent, there's always going to be a variety of views. We don't get into uh, the political, uh, main political issues, but we try to serve, at the end of the day I serve the, the membership of the Ulster Farmers Union as their office bearer, or as a deputy president, and we have to represent those views and those views are that we can live with this, uh, but we don't, we don't want to face a scenario where we have no deal. But certainly we're expressing a lot of worry about facing the possibility of no deal, because um, I think 
not alone the Ulster Farmers Union, but all of the four UK unions have been making it very clear uh, all along that a no-deal scenario um, would be the worst possible outcome for agriculture. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, that is something that, well, again, going back to the point of making, you know, we've had to represent the views of our membership in that respect. David finishes store lambs in conjunction with Suckler to Beef Enterprise. He highlighted that a no-deal outcome could mean that beef would have to compete with lower-priced products from other countries outside of the European Union. In respect to beef, the fact that the whole of the UK is actually not self-sufficient in beef, um, you know, at, at, I suppose at first glance you might think, well, that, that creates opportunity for Northern Ireland because we'd be able to uh, move our beef into that marketplace maybe at a higher price. However, when you actually sort of ask the question, you, you discover that, you know, there is an issue to do with carcass balance, to do with the fifth quarter, which is exported. So it's not, it's not a simple, uh, just a simple straightforward answer in relation to beef either. And I suppose the real fear from the beef sector has been um, that in a no-deal scenario, we would face the likelihood if, as I said, we're not self-sufficient in the UK in beef of cheaper imports coming in and actually undermining our market. We're joined now by independent Senator Ian Marshall. Ian, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. Ian, is the Brexit draft withdrawal agreement a good thing for farmers in Northern Ireland? I suppose, Claire, the first thing we have to consider is it's the first tangible document we really have about the withdrawal agreement and what that could look like. I think if we go back to the start of this discussion, the Brexit conversation actually came about because of ideology and an ideology shared by, by both sides of this discussion, but an ideology that we could never deliver. It got politicised very, very early on, which has actually detracted from the conversation and the discussion. And actually, this is the first document we have. So the Brexit uh, withdrawal document that we have, the 580-page document, in a, for all intents and purposes, is a pretty good document for Northern Ireland. But I, I always stress the fact that our preference, or my personal preference, would be that we didn't Brexit. Well, there's been you know staunch criticism of uh, the of the withdrawal document, um, particularly on the side of the DUP. Then you have the farm organisations coming out saying that they're cautiously welcoming it, welcoming it um, in some quarters, the UFU. But uh, there are lots of calls for the DUP to change their position and to support this support this document for the sake, particularly of agriculture. Yeah, well, I think the important thing to stress is that the, the, this notion that the UK would crash out of Europe is a horrendous situation for everyone concerned in agriculture and the agri-food industry, arguably for many other businesses. So we, we have a document, we have a document that addresses some of the concerns about uh, a, a seamless trading border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. We have access to a UK, to a GB market and we still have access to Europe. So actually, for all intents and purposes, this with this document delivers for Northern Ireland. I do understand the concerns of some of the parties of the DEP particularly, and I do understand that, that they have concerns long-term, but I think we have to remember what, what the concerns are for our business people. This is the economic concerns of, of a Brexit, and a Brexit with, with a bad deal or no deal is horrendous for our businesses. Yet the DUP are very vocal in their opposition and now there's threats to the confidence and supply agreement as well as the DUP props up the Conservatives. Would you be calling on them to change their position? Uh, well, I'm certainly not going to advise the DUP or tell them what to do about their position, but what I would urge the DUP is to look at this on economic terms because we've had two years to have these discussions. 
I fail to see an economic argument yet that has been made, a credible argument that is made for Brexit. In fact, all of the academic assessments that I've seen of this of this Brexit conversation has indicated actually it would be uh, wouldn't be advantageous for the UK to leave. But that being said, they're perfectly entitled to position. But I would ask them to to reflect and to possibly look at business, look at business concerns, and these are real concerns about jobs, about the economy, about uh, businesses in Northern Ireland, and, and that access to other markets. So I would just urge everyone to take a long hard look at this. You've read the document, uh, Senator Marshall, and you're a dairy farmer yourself um, up in Armagh, and you, you have touched there on some of the advantages in this document. Can you can you just really kind of outline where the benefits are in this document for farmers in Northern Ireland? Well, effectively what the benefits are, remember, for a Northern Ireland farmer, biggest market is the, the, the GB market, the UK market. So that's, that's our biggest market for food in the agri-food industry. But there's an equally important market south of the border. And remember, a lot of our agri-food companies actually have, have premises and trade on both sides of that border. So I suppose the first thing, we've got a seamless, frictionless, open border for trade to continue, as it has done for the, for the next few years, the foreseeable future. In addition to that, we have export capacity in Northern Ireland. We export probably 85% of the, the agri-food product we produce. So we have access to the GB market with no checks or restrictions on products exported into GB. Now, there is a reference in that document about the importation of on some products. There'll be regulatory checks. And I suppose that's where some of the concerns come from DUP, that if there's a, a divergence of standards that all of a sudden there's a fear from their perspective, I don't share the fear, but from their perspective that there'd be a, a divergence in standards and regulations and all of a sudden Northern Ireland would not have access to the same market opportunities UK would and there could be a, a separation in this this reference that everyone makes to this this notion of a, a, a border in the RIC. And the Chief Whip, uh, Geoffrey Donaldson, stated that uh, he believed that agribusinesses um, hadn't actually read the document in full and were kind of blindly supporting this. What, what's your response to, to those criticisms? I was very disappointed by those criticisms uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, I attended a function last Thursday evening in Belfast and uh, all the business leaders in the agri-food industry, or very, very, a large number of those people were there. And the, the discussion, the number one discussion and topic of conversation was about the Brexit document. Actually, they have read the document. They do understand the document, but what they know is they, they have to say about managing risk within their businesses. This document is the first tangible piece of evidence we have that actually there's something out there that will deliver some solutions to some of these problems we have. So I think it, I, I was very disappointed by, by Jeffrey's comments. I don't share them. And I know when I look at other big agri-organisations, for example, the farming unions, and especially you know, the farming unions coming out on a, on a pan-UK statement to say actually they supported this deal. So it's not ideal, it certainly could be better, but at least we've got a, we've got, we've got a, a document now that will give us a template on what we maybe could do to, to get through this. Prime Minister Theresa May is working uh, very hard to try and push this through her parliament. Um, with you know lots of caution and lots of talk about these letters um, that could be submitted to the to backbench committees uh, that would you know push for a no confidence motion in in Theresa May. Um, what about um, first of all? What's your response to that to that push that's out there? Do you think that they will will they reach that forty eight um, signatures mark? 
Well, I think as we stand today, they haven't reached that, that 48 number at this stage. And I think it looks now questionable whether they will actually reach, reach that. I think when you make reference to a no confidence vote of our Prime Minister, I don't think a change at the helm at the moment is actually beneficial or will help the situation. I think that uh, changing a Prime Minister at this critical point would not benefit us at all. Furthermore, I know there are some calls in some quarters for a general election. And equally, I don't think that would be beneficial. I think we need stability. We need steered through this current crisis. And I, and I do regard it as a crisis. So I think at the moment, a change in Prime Minister or an election wouldn't be the solution. If the deal goes through and the backstop is the insurance policy within within this draft treaty, um, would you have any concerns about uh, competition on the competition side for farmers um, in, in Northern Ireland? Um, and they will also have to retain commitments to the environment as well. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that is. I, I think sometimes some of these concerns are, and I don't, want to, to emulate Michelle Barney, but some, some of these things are, are over-dramatised. The reality is, if we're going to trade as the UK in Northern Ireland or in the Republic of Ireland with Europe, we'll have to abide by rules and regulations. And if we're going to uh, uh, deliver product into those markets, we'll be bound by those rules and regulations. So I can't actually see a, a huge divergence in standards. I can see some of the technical issues that, that you could have differentiation but for all intents and purposes, I believe there'll be close alignment with regulations. As a former president of the UFU also, Marshall, what advice would you give to the farm organisations on where they're at at the moment? There has been further developments today. Well, I think the farm organisations have to be applauded for, for their actions because, to be honest, it's a difficult situation. Because remember, Claire, the UK is divided completely on this one. So 50% of the nation think that, that we should leave, 50% of the nation think we should remain. That's a difficult position to be in a position of leadership, especially within a farm organisation. So I think what you've witnessed is they've had nearly two years of discussion about this. They've considered what they've been presented with. They've taken all the information and they've analysed it at length. And what they've said now is actually there's no economic case has been made. And in the absence of that, and if we're going to leave, and I, and I stress the if because I'm not actually convinced that the UK will leave at this point in time. But if we leave, then this withdrawal document certainly goes some way to alleviate some of their fears and their members' fears, whether they're farmers or food produce, producers or whatever end of the agri-food industry they function in. You mentioned there, if, if the UK leaves, uh, do you think there would be a second referendum? Well, I, I have always maintained that, that a second referendum is, is what needs to happen. And it's, it's interesting because it's not a second referendum. It's a vote on the deal. Because where we are at the moment with a very divided society, with the UK split, and remember this is divided, it has divided communities, it has divided towns, it has divided families, this discussion. So I think what we need at this point is strong leadership. I think what we need is to present the UK with the deal. And remember, this is the fundamental difference because this is wholly democratic to ask the people to vote. Because you present the, the British electorate with the deal and the option is this is the deal that we leave on or we remain. And I think that's fair. And it, there's a fundamental difference for the outcome of that vote because the outcome of that vote is wholly democratic. People make decisions in the full knowledge of what their vote entails. So I think that's difference. And if that vote results in a, in a, in a uh, uh, majority of people electing that we still exit the EU, then I as a Remainer, and I would say all of the other Remainers would be completely supportive of that because actually that validates the initial referendum 
and it gives complete justification for the UK government and the UK to Brexit. And how likely do you think that is, that there would be another referendum on it? Well, I think as we watch this 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 narrative unfold, it becomes more likely. I think that for a British Prime Minister, for the elected representatives, the best way to, to steer a path through the, these choppy waters is actually to go back to the people and ask the people for a democratic democratic decision on this pretty difficult subject. And I think that's what we need to be cognizant of and mindful of, that this is wholly democratic. You present the detail of the deal, you present what we're looking at, and you ask them the question, do we leave with this deal or do we remain part of Europe? And as you're saying that, yes, there's still a very strong opposition there. People, that the Brexiteers are still very strong, that they want this deal to go through. What about the likelihood of a no-deal scenario? How possible is that? I actually don't think a no-deal scenario is, is a reality. I think that everyone, the politicians, business, industry, the, the, the people in the street, know that a no-deal is a horrendous situation for everyone, for, for the UK, for the EU, for Ireland. So I think that no-deal is not a reality. And Ian, speaking as a farmer yourself, you're a dairy farmer up in Armagh, what about uh, the implications on your own farm, whether this deal goes through and there is uh, the backstop and there is the insurance policy and um, trade can continue as, as it always has for the last 20 years? Um, and if there is a no deal scenario, what are you considering yourself personally uh, facing those situations? Well, the, the reality with the no deal, as with much of this conversation, is pure and simply about uncertainty. I have no doubt whatever pans out in the next few weeks or months, the UK and Ireland and Europe will continue. The sky will not fall in. But that being said, we need to be mindful that, remember, Claire, I farm close to a land border. I farm close to a border which for the last 20 odd years has been seamless, been frictionless and been open. And we've built businesses and, and companies across that open border. So, And I'm old enough, unfortunately, to remember when there, was, when there were checks at the border. So we don't want to see us go back to that. And I think very often we forget what those inconveniences were actually like. So for businesses, uncertainty, we can have uh, some information about what regulation will look like, what, what the, the standards on either side of a border will like. But just uncertainty for planning for growing business, it's, it's very complicated uh, with the, the threat of a, of a no-deal crash out. Ian, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Now, the Beef Plan Group is gaining pace around the country. Our reporter, Brefney O'Brien, caught up with the group at a recent meeting in Cavan. What I've seen tonight is very encouraging that, that, that farmers are prepared to stand with us and make a stand over this. And where do you think, what do you think the Beef Plan can achieve where other farm lobby groups have failed? I suppose, well, I, I suppose the first thing uh, that, that we've done is we've listened to the farmers on the ground and, and, and we've made this their plan. While there is a good few uh, farmers in, in the IFA that, that support what we're doing and, and willing to back what we're doing, uh, and those people are welcome. The, the people at the top of the IFA have, haven't said to us yet that they're prepared to back our plan. We're an independent group and uh, we intend implementing this plan because it is our plan and we don't want it compromised. Like we, we've got support from the farmers on the ground and, and that's what will drive this plan. We, we've been recruiting now for probably the last six weeks. So our, our numbers today are, are up around six and a half thousand and, and, and they're rising every day. 
and if we get 40,000 farmers, um, we could be in position to, to control 40 to 50% of the kill. We're uniting farmers, and, and we want every farmer that's watching this to come out and support this plan, to stand with us and make sure that this works for us. What do you think of tonight's meeting? Very good, yeah. A lot of valid points there and that, and every man has to stick together. Mm. And as an organisation now, we'll have to pull together and keep this thing going. Uh, just the plan of us all coming together on that and uniting and trying to get better prices. Uh, an excellent meeting, an excellent first step in, in, uh, in, in a movement that's badly needed in this country. Farmers probably don't realise the strength they actually have. And um, there's no reason why every big farmer isn't involved uh, at this stage, including dairy farmers. There is no point in suckler farmers using 50, 60, 70 percent of their single farm payment to work all year for nothing. That has to stop. Well, I think the last talk there is with ICBF too, and that it's not what we're told is going to benefit our pockets, but it's not. We're doing a lot of extra weighing and measuring cattle and all that, and it's still less money at the end of the day. So the fact is getting away with modern, yeah, cheating the farmer. Has to be stopped. There's actually going to be something done now about maybe getting a fair price for cattle and not just having factories dictate and everything like. And do you think farmers will stay together, will come together under this group? I think they will, yeah. I think they will from what's been said in there and the way everybody's kind of receiving things, I think think they will. We have to get a better price, not just along on the short of it. And do you think the beef plan movement will, will, will achieve this? I think if we can build an army, we can go fighting. We need to go fighting. We have a big, big battle ahead of us. Uh, fair play to them. They're coming up with ideas there that can get the thing moving. Delighted to see it and look at any support we can give them, we'll give it to them in terms of ACA support. And I suppose, do you think farmers will come together under the Beef Plan Group? Well, there's no other option on to come out. I'm a former IFA County Chairman. I was involved in the Meat Factory Blockade in 2000. As someone who was involved in farming politics, that in the past, that they were let down by the by the politically, by the people are the, the officers in the, in, in the organisations. Do you think the farmers will come together under this beef plan? They have a, very, a hell of an uphill struggle. I think from what I take from tonight, uh, farmers are going to stand together, they're going to stand up for their, for their, for their incomes and, and, and what, to, what, to, what to deserve is, which is the cost of production plus the margin. And what would you like to see the beef plan group changing? I'd like to get them to see that uh, farmers are treated better in the factories and you can, we can get maybe more export in for uh, weanings out of the country. Like, And do you think the farmers will come together under the Beef Plan Group? I think it'll take, it's going to take a hard battle, but it will, it eventually it will come. When, when they see the good things happening, that's when, that's when people come on board. This thing, like farmers have been walked into the ground in this country for the past 20, 30 years. I started off farming. I've been, since I started, I feel we're working for less and less every year. That, that, that BDG scheme is a disaster. It's after taking thousands out of my pocket and I would stand up tonight and I would say that these people should be brought in and they should be made accountable for it. They're after doing fierce damage and the quality of the cattle that they're telling men to breed. Men can't get a living out of them. And I, I, I just had it up to here and I think it's great that there's a good crowd of men coming out to these meetings and we're going to stand up to them. There's three types of people in this country. There's the lads that talks about what did happen, there's the lads that talk about what's going to happen and there's the lads that don't give a what happened. Well, we're not the lads that don't give a what happened. We're going to stand up and we're going to talk about what is going to happen. We're joined now by Cormac Healy, the director of Meat Industry Ireland. Cormac, thanks very much for coming in to us. 
You see there the response that the beef plan group is getting around the country down in Cavan last night. And um, there's farmers there saying that they're basically on the brink, uh, that they're they're tired of the situation as it stands. They want fairness. They want good return for their products. What is your response to what's happening around the country with this beef plan group at the moment? Good evening, Claire. Uh, well. Look, certainly we're aware of the of the beef plan movement and have seen the significant coverage it has received uh, in the media. Uh, I think many of the issues being raised, I suppose, in fairness, are on the agenda and are, are in, in uh, discussion and in, in dialogue in the sector. Uh, but I suppose, firstly, you know, it's up to farmers in terms of farm representation and it's an individual decision for farmers in, in, in how they progress and proceed in that manner. And I don't think it's for Meat Industry Ireland to, uh, to necessarily be involved in that. Um, we are always open to dialogue and if there are new ideas or, or good ideas that add to the overall sector, uh, well, certainly, you know, that, that can be looked at. But what I would say, I suppose, is that, you know, one of the contentions, I suppose, uh, that, that, that's out there, uh, and, and part of the discussion is around the unfairness of price and the return to farmers. And I suppose what I would say to, to individual, the individual beef producer, uh, be they suckler or finisher, uh, but at the individual level is as an industry, uh, I think it's, it, it's unfair to, to have the, the very negative narrative around price delivery from the industry. I think over the last decade, as the strategy for Irish beef and marketing of Irish beef in terms of premiumization in European markets and UK markets uh, has evolved, there has been to delivery on price. Uh, if we look at the current climate, and I know there's an extreme uh, level of sensitivity around beef prices at the moment, I mean, the point is that we are very much in line with where market conditions are at the moment. The price today is equivalent to this time last year. Uh, overall, year-to-date prices up 1%. I know they were particularly strong in the midpoint of the year and have come back uh, due to market conditions since the summer. Uh, but price as we stand today is in line with what is happening in the market. It is in line with what's happening on the continent. Uh, and if you look across a lot of the continental markets year on year as we stand at the moment, their prices are behind. So there's a significant delivery at the moment on price, albeit that I understand farmers are, are frustrated and, and would like to see uh, an increase in price at this time of year and probably expect that there would be some increase. But we have, I suppose, over the last number of months, uh, processed certainly a lot more animals. Um, one clear message that I'm getting for industry is that stock levels held by companies uh, are rising and that's a signal of, of weaker demand in the market. So, you know, despite those challenges, what we are seeing is a stable price. Price has held stable over the last number of, uh, of weeks or even two months, despite a challenging uh, marketplace. And I suppose a lot of focus and comment is made about the UK market. Mm -hmm. and, and clearly, the UK market is a very important market to us. But the price comparison with it, I mean, when, when we talk about price gap, there will always be a price gap. In the UK for domestic EU beef or UK beef, there is a premium. That's a premium driven for a domestic product at retail level that has a red tractor, uh, their, their own brand on the product. And, you know, that will guarantee a premium for the British farmer, for British cattle that we will not get. Some of the commentary around the price gap that exists at the moment is exaggerated. 
The 200 euros. The 200 euros is certainly okay. certainly exaggerated when you look across the full spectrum of, of beef, across steers, heifers, cows, uh, and so on, and, and, and take their relative proportions in the, the mix of animals that we, we process, that, that gap is, is not there. But it is the case that, you know, just three of the top 10 retailers in the UK, uh, stock Irish beef. Uh, that when, you know, you do the, the, the facings at retail level, 89% of it is British beef. So there, there is that gap there, but we're extremely lucky to have it. We continue to, to, to have the, the British market on our doorstep. We hope in the longer term, and I'm sure we'll talk about Brexit later on, but we hope in the longer term that that market will still be there to us. It's uh, hugely important to the Irish uh, beef industry, but there will be a differential in price between domestic UK product and Irish product. We heard a lot of the speakers there in the BT down in Calvin, where they're claiming that the, the meat processors, that the factories are profiteering off the backs of farmers. What do you make of those claims? Well, obviously, I, I wouldn't accept those claims at all. Uh, let's let's be clear. I mean, our members are in in the, in the business uh, to to make a profit in the the business of beef processing, and that's what any business should be doing. Uh, but that certainly isn't a, a case of profiteering. I think. The evidence is there and uh, independently assessed over the years that overall beef processing returns pretty meagre margins overall for the level of investment. There isn't a high level uh, of margin in beef processing or in many aspects of, of the beef chain, regrettably. But to make, a, to, to, to make the suggestion that there's profiteering is, is, is totally unfounded and wrong and, and doesn't help. We certainly are an MII members that are processing beef are in the in the business of trying to deliver a sustainable return throughout the chain and we know it can't continue i mean we're we're mutually dependent farmers uh, are dependent on on the the meat processor and processors likewise are dependent on farmers staying in business and we have to work to continue to push on on price delivery in that regard uh, and that's what they do and processors continue to invest invest in their own plants and facilities it's phenomenal you know, every year that you, you turn into, to, to business, there's, there's a new capital investment required just to keep pace with the kind of standards and requirements that are there. Uh, but, you know, the margins are not, uh, are, are not there in beef processing either. It is a tight, low margin business, but we continue to try to extract more from the market when the market will deliver. And I think if we look at midpoint of this year, prices were very strong. Uh, there was, there was delivery in the spring. There was an ability for, 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 for processors to extract a price from the market. But we did find ourselves at a, at a point when we were well out of tune with the market by mid year and, and hence saw some, some fall off in price. But why can't it remain steady? Well, I suppose there, you have to look at a number of things. I mean, we're an export nation. 90% of the beef we're, we're producing is exported, okay? So you're looking, and we're being compared on many occasions, and often we're compared to the UK with a rather level price performance throughout the year, and the, the level of variation in, in, uh, in, in price is, is not as great as is seen in Ireland. Uh, but that's because they have a strong domestic demand that's an inherent demand that is uh, a 52 week of the year requirement for and let's take the case of the uk requirement for 
British beef and retailers ensure that they have uh, that product there. And, and it, it gives a more level um, performance on price throughout the year. We have, I suppose, one, the fact that we are so export dependent, you're, you're going into other markets as the, the next in line, the imported product, and you're depending on the, uh, the, the, the surplus or, or deficit that exists in the various markets we service throughout the year. And that gives some volatility. Equally, I suppose, we are, while, while not as excessive as in the past when we had a very seasonal uh, slaughtering, we are seeing, you know, I mean, moves in the, in the volume of animals that are coming out at particular times of the year that, you know, puts, puts pressure on the system as well. And Cormac, you have acknowledged that some changes are needed on the pricing system. What kind of changes would you propose? Well, I suppose when, when, you know, I mean, one, we, we're constantly challenged and rightly challenged on the overall price level, et cetera. And, and, and that will never change, no matter, uh, no matter what month of the year, what year we're in or, or what farm organization is, is, uh, is, is, is making the, the, the claim. We will always be challenged at overall price level. Within pricing, there's an overall return from the market for the beef that we sell, uh, the 560,000 tons of beef that we export. There's an overall return. How that is distributed across the, uh, the range of animals between categories and between the different grades, uh, I suppose is, is there for, for, uh, for discussion. A number of years ago now, we introduced a, a quality payment system. And that was aimed, I suppose, one, at improving market signaling uh, and, and, and secondly, to differentiate price on the basis of, of quality and in favour of the better grading animals. And in particular, it was focused at the, at the offspring and the output from the suckler herd. So we have heard calls, certainly in recent times, for, for a review around that. And I suppose at this point, Claire, what I'd say is the industry is, is open to that. How it actually progresses, I'm not sure at the moment, but certainly the kind of calls that are there are for, for, for something, you know, some, some recognition that the suckler herd needs, uh, needs a, a boost, needs a bolstering. Uh, and that's certainly one mechanism through the, the differentials that are there on the, on the pricing system. And what about the grading system? Are changes needed there as well? Well, I think if you're if you're talking specifically around carcass classification and, and grading, um, well, one, I think Ireland is out in in the forefront on this in that it has uh, almost one hundred percent automated grading across the across the country. So we have adopted. Uh, up to 14 years ago now, I would say, um, automated carcass classification systems uh, so that the, the grading machine is there in all of the, in all of the major plants. Uh, that is delivers, yes, yes, I believe so. And, and I think uh, our, our Department of Agriculture obviously monitors that uh, on an ongoing basis. And is actually, you know, I think there are plans afoot to even have more people involved in that monitoring of it. But it, it is there delivering you know, it's a comprehensive system. It's it's objective. It's taken the subjectivity out of it of the of the human grader, and it's delivering uniformity and consistency across the countries. Uh, at the moment, or in the course of this year, there's been some work done in terms of uh, the technology available to move on to to as we say, future proof it, if you like, in terms of cameras and lighting and all of that's used just to upgrade the technology to ensure that the system continues to to operate. But I think it would be wrong to, to suggest that there's a, that the system isn't working well overall and that the system that we have in Ireland, uh, automated 
objective system that is across all of the plants is, is, is certainly the way to go forward. We, we're a far cry, I think, away from maybe next generation grading down into individual meat yield uh, levels. But, you know, there's always work going on in the future, but that's, that's some way away. So at the moment, what we do is make sure the system we have at the moment works well and make sure that it has the latest equipment and technology and, and there's work going on on that at the moment. There is a lot of worry out there about the impact of dairy expansion as well on the beef site. Um, is dairy beef something that the factories are particularly worried about at the moment? Well, I wouldn't say worried. Uh, it's certainly a new dimension uh, or a changing uh, aspect of the of the industry at the moment with the increased output from the dairy herd and therefore uh, a greater dairy influence in, in the, the beef output. Uh, it's something that we're um, trying to address in terms of the quality because certainly there 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 would be issues with the quality and some of the uh, the 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 uh, terminal sires will say used on the on the dairy herd so we have to focus in on that true breeding and genetics to make sure we get the best quality output from the dairy herd not only in terms of its uh, suitability to the market and the type of animal the weight of animal the, the cut size etc but also to ensure that that the beef finisher or the beef rarer that's that's buying stock from the dairy herd actually is getting an animal that will return uh, or will give them a a, a fair chance at a, at a viable return on that animal. And there are areas that we have to work on there. I think the... Uh, so the, is that a matter of patience then? For your well, well, well not, not too much patience. I mean, we have to, we have to move on on this because clearly... Uh, you know, this is with us already. We've had dairy expansion. We probably will see more, but we've had a significant expansion in the dairy cow population. And therefore, we're seeing animals coming through already from it. So it's not a case that we can, we can sit and wait. I think we need the, uh, the dairy beef, uh, breed index, uh, that ICBF has, has developed. We need that to be in the, in the system and available so that the type of, you know, where the, where the dairy farmer is selecting uh, a beef sire for for those cows uh, that they're they're selecting an animal that will deliver in terms of a finished animal that will deliver for the beef finisher and also deliver a finished animal that is suitable to the market. So we have to get moving on that with with uh, with with the beef uh, the dairy beef index. Uh, perhaps with some way of ensuring that farmers know, well, if I'm buying that calf, that it has actually come from uh, a bull that has the the the, uh, the relevant beef traits, if you like, that will deliver for him as well as farmer. Cormac, what about outlook on price in the in the long term and in the more immediate short term, the Christmas market approaching? Yeah, I suppose in, in, in the long term, and often it's, it's easier to talk about the long term than the short term, but uh, in, in the longer term, I suppose, uh, where we are looking at increased demand, increased demand for protein, and within that beef, uh, finding its place and, 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 and having a, you know, a stronger outlook in the future in, in terms of one, in terms of new markets in Asia that we are trying to, to break into and making some progress on. Um, the longer term for, for us, for the beef industry in Ireland, uh, must be to continue focusing on the European market. I mean, the higher priced European market on our doorstep. And hopefully, too, that will involve the UK uh, as, a, as our near neighbour and a continued outlet for, for Irish beef. We, we need to continue to focus there. We have a high price production system. We need to be going into markets that are, are delivering the highest prices. But equally, we need to take advantage 
where we can of the new markets, the new growth markets in Asia. We've made some progress recently on China in terms of, of eventually getting in there after a lot of work. Um, but that's, that's just at its infancy. I mean, there's a, there's a limited number of plants approved at the moment where we're currently, we have applications in for another 12 to 14 plants to be approved. So we can, I suppose, harvest more from the, 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 the cattle population that can go to, uh, to, to China. And we need to then take advantage of, of, of markets like that where consumption and demand is growing, uh, and where it makes sense, where a better return for a particular cut or, or product uh, can be achieved and, and use that to feed in to deliver uh, a better return. So I think in, in the longer term, there is a, you know, there is a positive. There certainly are some longer term challenges as well in terms of climate change and how we deal with that in terms of meat image and consumption and changing consumer patterns. But overall, I think you can look in looking in the longer term, you're looking at, at greater demand and, and we have to make sure we're best equipped and have access to where that is happening. In, in the shorter term there, uh, and you mentioned the, the, the lead up to Christmas, I, I suppose if, if, if you looked at the last uh, number of years, you probably would expect to see some price increase as we, as we head towards the, uh, the end of the year. Uh, the sense I have uh, from, from, uh, from the industry is that with the continued strong um, throughput that's coming at us, and I mean, we've only gone through a week where we've been over 40,000 head again, um, there is, there is a challenge in seeing any, any increase in the, in the immediate future. Certainly, there's a strong stock level, uh, in, in stores. Cold stores are, are quite full at the moment. Uh, and while we have a stable price, I think perhaps to see immediate, um, positive prospects is, is, is more challenging. Um, looking just a bit beyond that, well, you'd hope that Coming through a year of 2018 when European beef production increased by uh, over 2%, uh, and certainly we saw a big part of that in the second half of the year, some of it attributed to drought, which we had here and across Northern Europe, and saw more beef uh, coming out of the market, increased cullings. Um, hopefully, as the stock level that is in the system washes through, uh, and I think the European Commission's forecast for beef production in Europe in 2019 is for stability rather than increase. Those are positives to look at, uh, and hopefully we'll deliver something uh, in, in as we move into the, into the new year. The great uh, issue, I suppose, out there is what happens on the 29th of March. I mean, in, in terms of Brexit and and how that plays out. What kind of turbulence will we see in the meantime uh, as we go to that? Because we know that there's still very challenging uh, weeks ahead. I think that was what Theresa May described it as challenging days ahead. Th that certainly is the case. How that plays out, how it impacts on sterling, and how we actually find ourselves on the 30th of March is, is certainly a concern. Now, my hope remains, a uh, personal hope is that we will get to uh, either a deal or some shifting of timelines, or, or, or certainly we, we hope to get into a transition period that will give everybody the time that's needed to uh, to adjust. Cormac, there's loads of more questions that we would we would be really eager to ask you, um, but we're just running out of time. But finally, I just want to know what is your message to a young suckler or beef farmer who is perhaps going around the country to these beef plan group meetings at the moment where there's over 6,500 members, what is your message to, to those young farmers who have quite who are very concerned about their future and the uncertainty around the sector? 
what what message would you give to them? They're they're contemplating leaving the the beef sector. I suppose the first thing I'd say is is that I do believe in the Irish beef sector, the the Irish beef as a product, uh, the resilience of it. Uh, the, the, the reputation, the good reputation it has. So we, we, we have a good foundation uh, as, as, a, as a sector uh, in delivering good product. And, and let's be clear, we have good access, we have good markets around us. We need to continue to, as I said earlier, premiumize in, in, in the UK and European markets and continue to, to make inroads on our access to international markets. And like I think those things- premium. Well, well, I'll come to that. I mean, perhaps a suckler premium, just to deal with it. I mean, yes, there's talk about a suckler premium. We talked earlier, uh, I suppose, in the discussion around whether, you know, whether the payment system reflects more a higher price for for the the better grades that would come from the suckler. I mean, you know. Consumers don't really understand suckler beef. I mean, they understand beef from particular breeds or grass-fed beef, etc. So, yeah, getting behind the message and the story of grass-fed specialist beef from family farms is certainly, as as we've recently uh, written in an article, it has been the cornerstone. Suckler has been the cornerstone of much of the progress that has been made for Irish beef in making inroads into the top end customers around Europe. And that's not, and I've said it, it's not a tagline that, that Suckler is the cornerstone. We wouldn't have made that progress uh, in penetrating European markets with, without, without Suckler beef, and we won't sustain it if there's a reduction in so suckers. So do we need it? So absolutely we do need it. If we end up a with a different if we end up with a different mix in our, in our overall in our overall output of beef then you know we won't sustain those kind of uh, markets. But but you know how how we get to it as I said one mechanism is through uh, through the uh, the differentials, for example, uh, that are there for the different grades, and trying to favour those better grades that come from uh, that come from the uh, the suckler herd. But on, on the wider the point of the message to to young young uh, suckler producers, or that is one that there is a there is there is positivity there in the future. But equally, that you know it is it is a business that they're running and has to be treated like that in terms of taking advantage of all of the technical advice and expertise and breeding that that is there that has been invested in and that can deliver better because that's one one point I'd, I'd, I'd refer to is that through the BDGP there has been an improvement where whereby our suckler herd was delivering 0.8 of a calf for every cow every year to a move to to 0.87 that's progress at 0.8 it doesn't matter what price we're at if we're not at maximum efficiency it doesn't matter what the price will be and my final piece and my parting piece I suppose there would be for that producer is to engage with a processor or or two to work closely with them and and that is happening on the ground there is you know, despite the, the overall uh, talk and tone, perhaps in the media at times and commentary around the sector, the beef sector and, and tensions in it, at, at the ground level between factories and individual processors, there are relationships and good relationships and, 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 and loyalty between them. But, you know, w- working closer with their processor, uh, finding out what it is that they are looking for and, and the processor knowing what they can deliver and when they can deliver will deliver a better outcome for them. Cormac, we'll leave it there. Thank you again very much for coming in to us. And thank you very much to all our guests and to our sponsors, Homeland. If you want to get in touch with the Farmland or Agriland teams, you can call or email us or get in touch with us on our social media channels. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.